0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is February the 1st, 20... No, it's not February 1st yet, it's January the 31st. I'm thinking ahead, last day of January for 2023. Uh, time moves ahead, but some things never change. Uh, Some things don't seem to die. World War II, for example, we did a show last year with the great British historian Richard Overy asking whether the Second World War had ended yet. His book, Blood and Ruins, The Last Imperial War, stretched out the war between 1931 and 1945. But in some ways, when it comes to questions of good and evil, the war still hasn't ended. Uh, earlier this week, um, or actually last year, I did a show with Kristen Beck, uh, a novelist who's written a, a novel about the Second World War, and she explains that it remains seductive for novelists because it's the perfect um, canvas to discuss to write about good and evil. And earlier this week, I did a show with the American historian Zachary Shaw on America's struggle between vengeance and virtue in the Second World War. He has a new book out, uh, This Is Not Who We Are, America's Struggle Between Vengeance and Virtue. It's rather easy for Americans, of course. They dropped the nuclear bomb, or the atomic bomb on Japan in the war. Um, That was was their... uh, Their vengeance, their virtue was the Marshall Plan and their unselfish commitment to Europe. But for some countries, Second World War isn't quite as simple. It's not really a matter of agency. Some countries were invaded and were subject to great crimes, but also have a very murky history. Perhaps the country with one of the murkiest histories is Holland. there's a new book out about the moral behavior, shall we say, of the Dutch during the Second World War. Holland, of course, was invaded by the Nazis at the beginning of the war. Uh, the Diary Keepers, World War II in the Netherlands, is written by the people who lived through it. Uh, it's written by Nina Siegel, who's a writer for The New York Times, uh, who uh, is based in Amsterdam in Holland. Uh, Nina... Was it that moral murkiness about the Second World War in Holland that drove you to write this book?
1: Yeah, I think to to a certain degree, yes. There's been a lot of discussion um, here in the last two decades about uh, the responsibility of ordinary citizens towards the persecuted Jews who, as you probably know, um, were murdered at a higher rate in uh, this country than in anywhere else in Western Europe. About seventy-five percent of Dutch Jews um, perished in the Holocaust, um, and they were, of course, yeah, I I mean. with- Let, Let's
0: contextualize that because what, what are the comparisons with uh, what, what Belgium and 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 um, and France? How do they compare? Because we need to keep this in perspective.
1: Sure. In neighboring Belgium, the percentage was about forty percent. Um, and in France, twenty-five percent of the Jewish population was uh, murdered in the camps.
0: Well, isn't the French case a little bit more complicated because of Vichy? I mean, it's 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 not an apples to apples comparison.
1: No, you can't have an apples to apples comparison with different countries and different situations and different political regimes. Um, so, I mean, France is a very different story, and. Um, Belgium is a slightly more similar story. France, of course, you know, wasn't surrounded by other countries that were occupied in the same way that the Netherlands was. And um, it was, so that's what I wanted to look at. Why, what was the major difference? What was the- uh, So so, so
0: just to to clarify, um, the Germans, of course, invaded Holland and Belgium at the same time. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. Are you saying that seventy-five percent of Dutch Jews were murdered by the Nazis, but only forty percent of Belgium Jews?
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: And what were the numbers, approximately? The number, I mean,
1: in the Netherlands, the the number uh, that's calculated for the people who died in camps was about one hundred and two thousand. And in Belgium, I can't give you the exact numbers, but that was a smaller number. I think it was about 60,000.
0: Yeah, that's an astonishing... That is an astonishing difference. Maybe there's a book about Belgium in this as a consequence as well. But anyway, back back to the Holland. So, so, so continue, I'm sorry.
1: So I live in the Netherlands. I've been living here since 2006. And for me, it was a question of... Um, you know what 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 were the circumstances here what led to that high number of um the percentage of the jewish community being decimated because for me um i'm living in a community and there are people around me who are you know carrying this legacy um families that still in some ways feel as though it's very difficult to be jewish in the netherlands and so i wanted to look back on that period and understand better what happened, you know, what was what level of complicity was there, what kind of moral questions are raised. And um, I found a very interesting tool for exploring that through looking at diaries that were written during the period of the war.
0: What... Um, I know that, you know, as, as I suggested in the beginning, World War II has never died uh, throughout Europe. There's still raging debates of one kind or another. Has there been a history of Dutch complicity in the murder of the Dutch Jews within Holland itself? Has it changed over time since the Second World War? Has it remained an issue that's mostly avoided publicly?
1: The question of complicity and resistance has been an ongoing threat, of course, in the uh, the Netherlands since the war. But uh, immediately in the post-war period, there was a sentiment that Essentially most people in the Netherlands opposed the Nazi invasion and opposed the occupation and were mostly resistors. And the question of what happened to the Jews wasn't really addressed until the mid 60s. There was a lot of denial and uh, silence about it. So in the 1960s with the publication of a book called um, The Destruction of the Dutch Jews or Ashes in the Wind by a historian named Jacques Presser, there was a very large uh, shift in the society, and people started to look and have more questions about, well, if our country had been such, a, you know, so full of resistors, why did this happen? How did this happen here? And so there was a lot more examination of that in the popular culture, and that has changed over time. Um, I think with different kinds of waves of responses. In my book, I look at the memory culture, as we call it, of how, how the culture responded to and narrated their own history. And then um, in the last 20 years or so, there's been quite a lot of new work about which parts of society collaborated, which elements, for example, the, the Dutch national railways was very involved. Um, they built a, a train connection from the largest camp, Westerbork, um, to the International Line so that it would be easier for the Germans to transport Jews to the camps. Um, there was a, a lot of study about the Dutch police and how involved they were. There's been more, more research about something called the uh, Jew Hunters. There were a number of different privateer brigades that, <laughs> that earned money, but by capturing Jews, babies and elderly people and they were paid by by the head. It was called kopkeld, And so um, there were lots of different elements of society including industry and uh, the civil administration. So all these things combined and you start to look at a different kind of picture of what happened in the Netherlands during the war. It wasn't a story of all resistors, <laughs> unfortunately, and it and it wasn't really, when it came to resistance, it wasn't really focused on preventing the persecution and deportation of Jewish citizens.
0: The other comparison um, that comes to people's mind is Denmark, both small countries, both with liberal, at least contemporary liberal traditions, both very pleasant places to visit these days, Copenhagen and Amsterdam. The... Would it? Would it? Is that a useful comparison, Holland and, and Denmark, and in the way in which uh, the Danish establishment, the royal family, were in some ways leading um, the resistance to the persecution of the Jews?
1: Yeah, I think it was an interesting comparison. My book is not a comparative book. It it just looks at the Dutch situation, and it and it looks at it through diaries. Um, but the people do talk about Denmark a lot because it was, in a sense, it was an ideal situation where the, the Danish really protected their very small Jewish community and um, were able to put them on boats and get most of them to safety. So it also had to do with the fact that the uh, Danish royal family was um, very active and, and vocal about protecting the Jewish community, which was not the case in the Netherlands. Um, you also have to remember that in the Netherlands, there was a, a quite large and rather deeply entrenched Jewish community, which went back to the 16th century when uh, Jewish people started to come here from Portugal and Spain because of the Inquisition. And so families had lived here for generations upon generations, and Amsterdam had a population of um, Jews that was about 10 to 12%, which is a significant population of the city. It had a very big cultural impact on the city. People were here, uh, people here were able to practice their religion openly, which was not the case in other parts of Europe. And so um, by the time, you know, the 1930s rolled around that most Jews were um, very integrated into Dutch society. Um, many, many were secular, didn't think of themselves as Jews at all. And, um, so that's also a really interesting thing to look at is how did, um, you know, in a place where there seemed to be so much acceptance, um, and not very much over anti-Semitism, although people will argue that there was, you know, different kinds of anti-Semitism, certainly. Um, um, why did the, why did the Dutch seem to turn their backs really on their neighbors?
0: Yeah, I want to get to the details of the book, but of course, um, The most famous dead Amsterdam Jew um, who hasn't really died is Anne Frank. We did a show, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Dara Horn, um, who wrote a book, a really interesting book, People Love Dead Jews, Report from a Haunted Present, in which Dara argues that there's a preoccupation in the West with with Anne Frank, who wasn't a typical um, uh, a Jew, a Jew who was massacred by the the Germans. It was mostly in Eastern Europe. What's your take on uh, Horn's thesis? Do you have any strong opinions?
1: <laughs> I loved Dara Horn's book. I I think she's terrific, and um, she does talk about how important it is for people to understand that there is a living Jewish community, <laughs> um, and that Jewish people are still interesting, even if they're not dead, but um. I mean, I do think that she points out that uh, the talking about Jewish culture isn't just about talking about dead people, it's about talking about you know, what exists uh, in the culture. So for me, it's really important as a Jewish person living in a, in a city like this, that, um, that I talked also to the people who, have, who are carrying this legacy because they are also affected by history. It's not, I mean, I don't think it's just a question of us being fascinated by something that went away this is a continuous process for many people of trying to understand their own um, background and where they came from in the same way that African-Americans are still trying to understand what slavery means to them, because that's not over. It's a process of memory and commemoration and, and uh, inheritance of, of uh, tragedy and trauma.
0: Uh, in the publicity materials for the book, um, uh, you were described as as uh, as as growing up in a family that survived the Holocaust in Europe. I know your your grandfather was Hungarian. Has that had a big impact on you? And has this driven in part this project, the Diary Keepers?
1: Oh, certainly. My my grandfather had numbers on his arms. He was in, he was in uh, he was liberated from Mauthausen. Um, my mother was in hiding as a child. My grandmother was in hiding, and most of my family in Eastern from Eastern Europe uh, perished in the war. we have hardly any relatives who survived. And um, so I grew up in New York. It was very comfortable and safe and seemed to be fine.
0: <laughs> it was only when
1: I moved to Europe in 2006 that um, I started to think about my legacy as a Jewish person a little bit differently. Um, It's very hard to walk around the center of Amsterdam in the Jewish quarter and not notice that there's a large void here. Um, And so, of course, I had questions about people, how people had lived through that, how people had, you know, thought about it, how neighbors had thought about it, how people had betrayed their neighbors and how they I mean, it was just something that I think when you grow up in a family where you're you're your mother and your grandparents have gone through something like this. You wonder about it all the time. It's just part of of your landscape. Um, and so, being in Europe, it made it much more immediate for me. And I think that's true for a lot of uh, American Jews who who don't face that in America. But when they encounter European culture and life, and and notice the absence of certain elements of Jewish culture, they 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 feel more connected to it.
0: So what, what is the book, or what should what do you think the book should teach us uh, in terms of these excerpts from journals kept during the War of Dutch People? What, what clarity does it bring, these very difficult, complicated subjects?
1: So what I think is different about this book, as opposed to a lot of histories that we read about um, the war period, is that because you're reading about it, as the war is unfolded through the eyes of people who are going through it and don't know what's gonna happen, it has a certain immediacy and intimacy um, that really makes you face the war in a much different way. It feels more present um, because it's not my history of, the, of what happened, although I provide context and I explain who the people are and how they fit into this puzzle. Um, of like what happened. I have different perspectives as well. There are, um, there are Dutch Nazis who are represented in the book, their diaries the, of, um, there's the diary of a Dutch police officer who was head of um, an investigations agency for the Nazis. And there's um, a, a sort of Dutch Nazi socialite who writes in her diary about what her life is like going to parties with other um members of the NSB, which is the Dutch Nazi Party, and members of the Nazi Party. And you get a picture of her landscape during the war period. And then there are three Jewish people all in different circumstances. One is um, in hiding, one works for the Jewish council, and one is in a camp. And he describes day-to-day life in that camp as he sees it. And um, then there's a woman who's a resistor who... Um, hid many um, Jewish people in little cottages in the woods, the velu forest. And um, then there's a young factory worker um, who has no particular political affiliation. So you see the war and then it's written chronologically so that you see the war unfolding from many different perspectives at the same time. So um, it's not an analysis of history. It's It's a way of narrating history from within the moment.
0: Do you think you get to see from these the, these diaries people essentially at, at their most, shall we say, animalistic, that at the beginning of the war it seemed reasonably clear that the Germans were, they were certainly winning and that they would win the war. And then as the war went on, it became increasingly clear that they wouldn't. Did people's, shall we say, their consciences, their attitude towards these terrible crimes of the Germans and the the Jews who had been killed in, in Holland. Did it change between, say, 39 and 44?
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I, you see at the beginning of the war, and this is something that I talk about a lot in the book, is that people really believed the Germans had won. In fact, there were predictions that the um, the Nazis would be running Holland until the year 2000. There was very little sense that the, the British could... Um win the war at that point because they were basically the only ones that were up against the Germans in 1940. And so um, th- that's part of it. I mean, I think people felt that it was necessary to go along to get along um, up until about 1943. So that that was that explains quite a bit of the complicity in a sense. And then um, the tide of the war shifted, obviously, after Stalingrad, and so then you see a quite a bit more resistance and and uh, people feeling like there's a possibility that they they will get out of this and that this will not be the fate of their future. So that I think is, um, and especially true, I think, for the Dutch, who were the neighbors of the of the Germans and in some ways had many similarities and they had a long history of, you know, trading and working with the Germans prior to the war. So um, you see, and also each each of the diaries has its own arc. There is, you know, somebody in the diary feels one way at a certain point and then their lives change and then they and they shift. And there are these really dramatic turns that happen for each individual, which was one of the surprises for me of the research that, um, you know, these weren't repetitive narratives of day after day after day. They were shockingly dramatic narratives (laughs) that happen that unfold as everything is unfolding as the course of the war develops. And I I think that's what makes it quite riveting to read from all these different perspectives is you're kind of inside something. And even if you actually know the history like day by day and you already have heard, you know, what happened in World War II many times, you'll find that the way that people react to the changes is different from what you expect.
0: Was it, or is it rather depressing in the sense that people's morality always suit the times? So it's very easy to be shocked by the, by this great crime once the Germans started losing. Were there people who proved, I mean, there's this ongoing debate throughout the history of our species about whether or not we're innately moral or whether we really act to suit ourselves. Um, Were there examples of diary keepers who, who didn't pursue their own interests, who were willing to sacrifice themselves irrespective of the consequences?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I, I, about half, I would say. I, I think that um, even when you look at the, you know, the Nazis who felt that they were doing the right thing uh, at that time, um, they all had more. the
0: Nazis who felt they were doing the right. What does that mean?
1: Well, like the police officer who uh, was working for for the Germans. Um, he felt that he was justified in what he was doing. He felt that he was a comrade in a struggle for a revolution at the time. And then of course, um, over time, his perspective changed. Um, so he had, I mean, it's interesting to talk about morality. I mean, of course, we, we know that, that, that the, the Nazi ideology we can say is clearly immoral and violent and cruel and terrorizing and all those other things, but um, individuals have their own moral rudders. And so they justified things in their own minds in the way that they behave. Um, It's very easy for us to look back on history and say this person did this wrong or that person did that wrong. But I think um, morality is for many people, um, you know, determined by their circumstances and their moment. But let me just say that there is a woman, for example, who is just a shining example of morality, I think for everybody in this book, who is a, a woman who resist, who resisted by helping and saved 72 lives. And she writes uh, about her life. She was just a grocery store owner in a small town. And as soon as she found out that people were being persecuted in Amsterdam, she opened up her home originally and then started to Rent out cottages in the woods and and put up people there. Um, she would put up you know like 18 to 20 people in each house, and she would gather she and her group of uh, resistors, a very small group. They um, they raised money. Um, they supplied these houses with everything that they needed for years, and they were able to save people's lives. and And she's she is really a moral rudder in the book. And I also think that. Um, when we look at the stories of some of the uh, Jewish people who are in hiding, um, or um, let's say, okay, Philip Mechanicus, he was a journalist, a quite famous foreign correspondent in the Netherlands. Um, prior to the war, he was arrested for not wearing a Jewish star. And then he was um, tortured and his hands were crushed and he was sent to uh, Westerbork camp where he managed to stay for about two years, even though most people um went through there in a couple of days and he is um an extraordinary voice of morality and uh consciousness and and philosophy really in the midst of a a, um you know a a terrorizing moment in a in a place that felt like a purgatory to him. So I think each of the individuals in a story, maybe with the exception of the Nazi socialite, <laughs> have a moral compass to some degree.
0: And the Nazi socialites weren't unusual in home. We did a, a show last year on Coco Chanel, who was a controversial socialite in France. Um, this is a very factual book Nina you've written a couple of novels one the anatomy lesson uh, about the Dutch golden age very different Dutch period Mm -hmm. then you'll thank me for this a psychological thriller Um, as a writer what's your experience in reporting other people's diaries you couldn't make them up of course You, you couldn't even really edit them you have to you have to publish them as they are. Did you struggle as, uh, as a novelist? You're also a, a journalist, of course, so nonfiction comes naturally to you. But what's the difference did you find between this oral or written history of other people's written history of Second World War and writing novels?
1: I'm really more of a journalist than I am a novelist. I've been a journalist since 1994. I've worked for the New York Times from Europe since 2012, and actually, I worked for the New York Times from 1997 to um, uh, 2000 as well. And I've 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 worked as a journalist pretty much continuously throughout my career. So um, the novels were an attempt to do something different, uh, which you know were were you know I I think my novels are fine, but I think um, it's fair to say that I've. That done doesn't sound work very and, encouraging.
0: You must. <laughs> I know you put a lot of work into them.
1: I did. They're very good. But, um, but all I'm saying is that I, I think I've worked more as a nonfiction writer than as a fiction writer. Um, and uh, the, so it does come naturally to me to report on other people's stories and to try to put them into context and try to help people understand um you know what they're saying and to clarify things that are not clear uh, within their own writing because remember diaries are not written in a way that's like hello my name is so and so and my husband is so and so and you know they don't introduce themselves and so you have to piece together all these things to figure out like what are they saying who are they referring to when did this happen you know that kind of thing so that's a lot of research you have to figure out like when um, Who's this person, Agnes, that he keeps mentioning, and so on? And and so, um, it's a process of reconstructing their world, which I don't do fictionally, but I do with like a lot of research. And um, in fact, my um, most of my novels, I've used quite a lot of research as well, because they're just like a, my my book, The Anatomy Lesson, was a reconstruction of um, how a Rembrandt painting came together in. Um, 1632 in Amsterdam around
0: a dissection uh, as some novelists would argue the the non-fictional world is best represented in novels so maybe, I mean obviously some of the, the best work on the holocaust and moral complicity has been done by novelists
1: yeah Well, I think what's interesting about using diaries is they're not exactly nonfiction. They're somewhere between fiction and nonfiction. I mean, people are reporting on their lives as they unfold, but you don't know how much of them are are real. So in a way, and plus they get certain things wrong sometimes. Well, they're written
0: for themselves. I mean, none of these diary keepers expected Nina Siegel to publish their work, did they?
1: (laughs) I think that that uh depends on who you're talking about so i think that uh philip mechanicus for example who was a journalist um and was used to being published wrote in a way that was for a public in a certain way he titled his uh journals in depot which was the title that they received when they were finally published and i think also um you know the police officer i don't think he was writing for the public but i think he felt like he was keeping a record of history you know, he kept a lot of um, like he clipped a lot of photographs from newspapers and then he would talk about it. I think he felt he was documenting something
0: they um, were for themselves. In contrast, of course, to our social media age on TikTok and Facebook and Instagram, where we write and talk and make movies and photographs for others. Uh, it, it, will the Diary Keepers make us nostalgic for a pre-social media, pre-internet age, Nina?
1: I do hope that they will make us nostalgic for a period where people wrote about their lives in a lengthy way, <laughs> because I feel like these documents are so useful to us understanding. You know, we do in many ways document our lives pretty regularly these days. And so we're very open. But the ways that people write diaries are very you know, so a lot of, we tend to think of diaries as a, the place where people write down their most intimate thoughts because we think of them as like things that adolescents keep. But that's not true. In wartime, all kinds of people from all over um, the world keep diaries in a different way. They're keeping. They're trying to keep a historical record. Sometimes they think of themselves as documentarians. Whether some of them are not at all personal, they're just like a lot of the diaries in the in the neod collection are um records of everything that somebody knew happened because there was such a void of information and there was a lot of suppression of information that people felt like they had to write things down because otherwise no one would know and so there are various different reasons why people kept diaries and for me uh, i chose diaries because i chose them from a selection of um, there were 2,100 diaries in this collection and i chose seven and the ones that I connected to a little bit more were the ones that mo- were slightly more documentarian because I'm a journalist and that's sort of my natural inclination. But also I wanted to get the descriptions of what was happening in the war as it was unfolding. Um, and there are, there are other diaries, like for example, Eddie Hillison's diary from the period It was very, very internal. And all she wrote about was like what she was feeling and, and what her sex life was like and things like that. You don't even know there's a war going on. And like my daughter, for example, just read The Diary of Anne Frank and she's like, this book doesn't say anything about the war. <laughs> was like, well.
0: yeah, it was hard to, for Anne Frank to follow the war. She was stuck hiding. Right. From some people in were the so
1: closed off from what was happening that they really couldn't report on anything that was really happening. So, And some of these, one of my diaries is also a diary in hiding, which reflects some of the same qualities, except he was an older person and he was, hearing about things and he had some reporting from other people who were in the resistance who were telling him things so diaries often report rumor or misinformation too so that's something you have to be conscious of when you use them as a source but let me just say also that to your other question about um fictionalizing or Coming to it as a novelist, my um I don't fictionalize, <laughs> but I do um, use my own personal experience because um, I talk about my own family, um, my own family history, and why I feel motivated to understand these stories. And I talk about going to certain landmarks where things happened in the book and relating to them in a personal way. And I made a lot of connections with the children and grandchildren and family members of some of the diary writers as well. So it's a personal journey in a sense. It's not only, um, it's not as factual reportage. It's, it's much more intimate And because that's also part of the diaries. They are very intimate and they are very personal. And I feel like it has a novelistic quality to it because you get engaged with these people's stories. And as I said, they have these surprising twists and turns, which you don't expect, I didn't expect reading them. But they they all, like, by the end of the war, something has dramatically changed in the lives of almost all these people.
0: Nina, we had a show um, with the the eminent humanitarian Jane Olsen recently. Uh, she has a new book out, World Citizen. And we talked about remembering all these various injustices throughout history. I think we talked about the Holocaust. And then focusing as a journalist or as a humanitarian on current injustice. Did you sometimes feel, or should we sometimes feel, that too much is spoken about? The moral complicity of one group or other in the Second World War, and that we're at a moment now, 70 years after the war, where... We just need to move on. We need to learn how to forget.
1: Um, I don't know about forgetting as being essential to us moving on. I think understanding is essential to us moving on. I definitely think that we need to pay more attention to um, genocidal crises that are happening around the world at this moment. Um, You know, we have to pay attention to the Rohingya. We have to pay attention to Ukraine. We have to pay attention to what's going on uh in china we we well, that
0: goes without saying doesn't it nina i mean
1: yeah but that doesn't mean no one that would we,
0: argue otherwise <laughs> uh,
1: certainly there are people who would argue otherwise but i think that we have to uh that we don't learn from the past by ignoring it or forgetting it and i think there are a lot of ways that i uh myself wanted to understand these things as but the you childhood. remember
0: at nuremberg the cry was never again and doesn't seem to have made much difference over the last 70 years there have been one kind of holocaust or another all these mass murders you mentioned ukraine um
1: Certainly not never again seems to be like a vacant cry at this point i mean we have not learned we don't learn <laughs> the question is why don't we and what how can we and so for me i think that we have to think in different ways about these questions raise moral questions that uh that feel personal and intimate and i think um
0: what do you mean you mean to personalize these things to make people feel as if they're not just events in history that they're connected with their actual lives
1: yeah i think that's part of it i think we have to think of not just what what were the numbers and what were the events and what were the battles but uh what happened to these individuals how did they cope with moral issues how could how can we learn from how they coped or failed to cope with um things that they experienced remember that's an interesting
0: know- issue i know you write about um in the new york times you're referred to in a piece on the 1619 project and how and what its impact has been in 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 the netherlands the Dutch are trying to come to terms with what happened. The the king recently unveiled the Holocaust Names Monument in Amsterdam. There are controversial museums on the World War II. Are, are the Dutch, do you think, in twenty twenty three, are they beginning slowly to come to terms? If the Dutch can't, who are very honest and very open history? Uh, maybe that's a bit of a stereotype, then nobody seems to be able to. Uh, uh, is there progress on the Dutch front?
1: <laughs> I think there is finally progress. Yes, as you mentioned, the Names Monument was unveiled in 2021, um, which is new. This was the very first time that every single name of a uh, person who was murdered in the concentration camps has a place, uh, is is articulated in anywhere in the Netherlands. And... Um, uh, the Dutch National Holocaust Museum will open this year, maybe I think in October. Um, so these are big changes in the landscape. Uh, these are, you know, it's there's no way of saying that the Dutch have not been conscious of World War Two. It's obviously very much part of the conversation, but um, but there are new ways of telling a story about. Um, costs that have not been told and unfortunately you know you're saying well haven't we talked about this enough and the fact is no the Dutch have not certainly not talked about this Um, they haven't talked about they they really have not come to terms that much until recently with with what happened here it seems like a long time but it is a long time and it hasn't happened really I mean the Germans have done a much better job Um, they have all kinds of you know, programs and educational, you know, systems and German children are taught a lot more about the war and the Holocaust than Dutch children are. And so, you know, certain ideas persist that are inaccurate and don't make sense. Um, <laughs> namely, that the Dutch were, you know, protected their neighbors and um, nothing too bad happened here. So uh, I, I think, uh we do still need to talk about these things because they're still relevant. They're still carried in the bodies of people who are living here. It's, I go to a synagogue, for example, in the south of the of um, of Amsterdam that is surrounded by a moat and has a bridge that is pulled up and is surrounded by, <laughs> um, you know, military personnel to protect the children going to study at Hebrew school. We still have issues. It's a small community, and it's. Uh, And it's a very vital thing uh, still in the hearts of a lot of people. A lot of people who grew up in the Netherlands who are one generation older than me or my generation um, didn't feel comfortable saying to people that they were Jewish because of what happened in the war. That's now. That's not old history. That's what's carried around in the bodies of people who live today.